1 Samuel chapter 12. Let's uh, pick it up in verse 16. We already studied through this on Wednesday night, but there is something I said we would come back to and think through this morning, and it is so vital to our, to our Christian walk, um, to following after Jesus. And I wanna talk about something, ultimately, that as we look at this, this produces love. We're told all the time through the scriptures to love one another, right? And, and to, to move on from brotherly love to unconditional agape love. And, and sometimes the question can be, well, how, how exactly do we do that? Part of it is practice. I mean, love is decided upon and then it is practiced. It's not a feeling. If it was a feeling, none of us would ever stay married. But love is produced, it's produced, and it's produced in large part by what we're gonna talk about this morning. Looking at verse 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel said, even now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. What does that have to do with love? I'll explain in a minute. Samuel stands before the people. This is a crossover chapter now. Saul has been victorious. We talked about this Wednesday night. Saul, the new king, has been victorious. The people acknowledge him as king. And now Samuel sets about the difficult task of trying to renew the people to the covenant that they had made with the Lord, even though now there's gonna be a king involved. This is on the heart of Samuel, and his heart is truly for the people, toward the people, though he says, you'll know and see that your wickedness is great. This is not about just being judgmental. Judgment has a purpose here. And so Samuel stands up and his, his focus, I love Samuel. Samuel is one of the few in the scriptures who just maintains integrity, who stands for the Lord and for his people before the Lord throughout his life. This is the characteristic of this prophet. He figures as one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. You wanna learn how to pray? Look at Samuel. Learn from Samuel. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 99, verse six, Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. That's quite a company, Moses, Aaron, Samuel. Centuries later, there will be a railing judgment given by God through the prophet Jeremiah against Israel and their wickedness in the time. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse one, the Lord says, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Implication, Moses and Samuel were great men of prayer who greatly loved this people, Israel. But even if they stood up, it's gone so far off the cliff. Samuel's praying got God's attention. Would you like to know that yours did? Would you like to know that when you cry out to the Lord, when you bow before the Lord, when you speak words to the Lord, that he hears you. 
Well, look at Samuel for just a second. Thinking back, remember that Samuel himself was a product of prayer. Our brother Les likes to say often, I'm a product of intercession. <laughs> and Samuel was a product of prayer. His story began with the prayerful ache of his mother, Hannah, in chapter one of 1 Samuel. And you may recall that his name, Samuel, Shemuel, means heard of God or asked of God. You could even say this guy's name means asked and answered. Asked and answered of God. So he's a product of prayer. He was raised in the place of prayer at the tabernacle. Remember the Lord said, from above the mercy seat in the holy of holies, there I will meet with you. There I will respond to you. I will, I will answer you. That's where Samuel grew up there in Shiloh. You might remember there in Shiloh as, as a young man, that's when he first heard the Lord calling his name Samuel and he thought it was Eli. This happened three times before Eli realizes, no, the Lord is talking to you. Go ask him what he would say to you. So we understand that, that he was raised in the place of prayer as a product of prayer. And so far, this reminds me that prayer is two-way communication. It's not one way, that it goes to and from, that it is both spoken and heard and we recognize, thirdly, that Samuel proved the power of prayer. He was a powerful prophet. He would be up there with the likes of a Moses, of an Elijah. This prophet knew how to pray up a storm. He literally did. In fact, if you just look back a couple of chapters to chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, do you remember this? It says, the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. We're told that Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him, asked and answered. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. So what we find is as we come to chapter 12, this will be the second time that Samuel prays up a storm. That Samuel prays and the Lord responds with thunder. Now, quickly, you Bible students, do you remember the connection between prayer and thunder? that the two actually are very closely related in the Bible. I'm gonna take you through this pretty fast, so hold on. Revelation chapter eight, verse three, tells us that an angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer with much incense given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. This picture of all the prayers offered by the saints of God being held there at the altar. And it says, this was on the golden altar, which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand, and the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake, prayer and thunder. And a couple chapters over in Revelation, uh, chapter 10 
Verse one says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And by the way, when that, rain, when that rainbow-clad angel comes down, no one's gonna be thinking Pride Month. And he had in his hand a little book which was open and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, John says, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. What are the seven peals of thunder We'll wait until we get to the Revelation study in a few months. I'll tell you. Psalm 29 gives us the answer. Remember the Revelation is written by a Jewish man about Jewish things. And when you understand that, it unlocks so much about the Revelation. And so seven peals of thunder, what might that be? A, a, a Jewish student of Torah, of the word of God, would know what the seven peals of thunder are. Psalm 29, verse three, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Verse four, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Verse seven, the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Verse eight, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. Verse nine, the voice, number seven, the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. Seven times, the voice of the Lord, seven peals of of thunder, and it's not just the connection of seven. You see, the word for voice there in Psalm 29 in the Hebrew is kol, Q-O-L, kol, and it is synonymous with thunder. In fact, when we read 1 Samuel chapter 12 that Samuel prays and, and it thunders, the word is kolot, kolot. Uh, literally, when he prays, let me read this. I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And kolot is simply the plural form of kol. So it's not just thunder. I'm gonna pray that he send thunders. Thunders, voices. The seven peals of thunder. God's voice seven times in Psalm 29. The seven peals of thunder in Revelation chapter 10. The thunder of the Lord. We're talking about the voice of God a voice that thunders. John chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Which is an interesting comment. This voice was for your sake. Some didn't even understand the voice. They just heard thunder. Others understood the voice but thought, well, maybe that's an angel, but some booming voice came out of heaven, some thunderous voice. Some didn't understand. Some did understand. Faith is always the difference in understanding when the voice of the Lord speaks. But what is the real difference there? The real difference between those who hear the voice of the Lord, the thundering voice of the Lord, especially in response to prayer, and those who don't. James 5, verse 16, says the effective prayer 
of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now we read that and, and think, well, that excludes half of us right there, which is not true. I remind you, brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus, you are made righteous. You may not feel righteous. You may not have necessarily even behaved all that righteously. But you are made righteous in Jesus and the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then he goes on to say, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That is to say, just like us. Elijah was just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So you have a picture of Elijah who, like Samuel in 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 12, prayed with expectancy, prayed with confidence that God hears me and will respond to me. But again, I say, I'm no Elijah. I'm no Samuel, I'm no Moses. No, you're not. But you have an anointing, and you all know. Think back to what we talked about last week. And some people I know, after our teaching last week, talking about your anointing, my anointing, some still are like, I don't think I, I'm not sure I, what is my, you have an anointing from the Holy One, John writes, and you all know. And the problem when we hear that is we immediately go to anointings. Well, what are my anointings then? What are my gifts? That's not what we're talking about. You have an anointing. You have the Holy Spirit. He'll give the gifts. Don't worry about the gifts. You know, don't, don't stress over that. Don't be like a child on Christmas Eve. What am I gonna get? What am I gonna get? What am I gonna get? Just stop and be thankful that you have the spirit of the Lord. And because you have the spirit of the Lord, you can walk spiritually. You can comprehend the thunder. Whereas otherwise, without the Holy Spirit, you would not. You have an anointing. And he will give you your anointings at the proper time, as he so wills. But it's that anointing that makes the difference of being able to actually hear God or not. And the anointing comes of faith in Jesus Christ. So the Bible says, Elijah was a man just like us. Samuel was a man just like us. Moses was a guy just like us. The only difference sometimes is, is the recognition and the acceptance of their anointing. Accepting that the Spirit is alive in me, does dwell with me. And that kind of confidence, it doesn't come from self. It never comes from self. It will only ever come from the Lord. Thunderous voices, prayer. What are we talking about this morning? Prayer produces love. If you want to develop love in your life, prayer produces love, but not just any prayer. I was even thinking in some of the songs that we were singing this morning, we have such a tendency. The battle belongs to you, we were singing. When I fight, I'll fight on my knees. With my hands lifted up, oh God, the battle belongs to you. And we believe it, we, we, we sing it even crying out, hoping against hope that God will win this next battle. But even that prayer, so many of the battles that we fight in prayer, we fight for ourselves. Pray for me. 
Pray for my problems, my family stuff, my issues, my concerns. And that's not the kind of prayer that I wanna talk about this morning. That's not the kind of prayer that produces love. There's a very specific type of prayer that produces love. We, we pray about and for all kinds of things. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings made be made on behalf of all mankind, that we all be praying. But there's a prayer of faith, a love-producing prayer of faith. It is more Christ-like than any other kind of praying, a mode of praying that truly does expect a thunderous downpour, and that's intercessory prayer. And intercessory prayer is different. By definition, by understanding, intercessory prayer is prayer that stands for others. It's not about me, and it's not for my needs, and it's not winning my battles. Intercessory prayer is to intercede, to stand in the gap on behalf of other people. It's best modeled really in the entire ministry of Jesus. Think about this, that Jesus' ministry is a picture of intercessory prayer because Jesus came to intercede. Spiritually, he interceded. Physically, he interceded on the cross. Even emotionally, Jesus threw himself across the chasm that separates God and humanity. Ephesians chapter 53, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The greatest act of intercession in history was Jesus on the cross. So if we start to talk about prayer and then we slide into this intercessory prayer. I don't know, have you ever thought about intercessory prayer as that prayer that those intercessors do? Right? We have a group of people. Yeah, they're at my church and they're intercessors. I'm not an intercessor. I, I, I pray, but I'm not an intercessor. They're the intercessors. And so we send the prayer stuff to them to intercede for us and on our behalf. Jesus is the great intercessor. He is the picture of that in how he lived his very life. He interceded for the transgressors. That word intercede in the Hebrew is pagah, which translates Interestingly, to fall upon, to attack, or to petition on behalf of another. So it, it, it's, it can be used either way. Context tells us how the word is, is used. It can mean to fall upon. Paga, you're gonna fall upon someone in battle. You're gonna attack somebody in battle. But it also can mean to intercede to prayer, to pray on behalf of someone. And when this word is used, paga, in the Hebrew scriptures, when it's used of prayer, it literally means to take something on yourself. You could even say to be the one attacked instead of someone else, to go between. In our case, it's Jesus taking our sin. 
So if you stay in Isaiah 53, verse 12 again says he interceded, paga, for the transgressors. But if you trail back to verse 6 of Isaiah 53, it says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, paga. It's the same word. How did Jesus intercede? He allowed all our sin to fall upon himself. He took on himself our sin that he would stand in our place to intercede for us. I don't know that we fully comprehend how weighty, how awesome intercessory prayer is because it's to stand in the gap for another and it's to take their stuff on yourself as you pray. Jesus fell on his knees that our sin might fall upon him. And that's intercession. And if we're fully translating intercessory prayer correctly this morning, it sounds painful. Sounds like intercessory prayer could really hurt. Yes, you got it. Absolutely. In fact, I suggest to you that if intercessory prayer doesn't hurt, it's not intercessory prayer. If it's not personally painful, then we're really not recognizing what it is that we're doing when we intercede on behalf of another. In the Greek, so the Hebrew word is paga, in the Greek, it's intukano. And it means to plea or to make an appeal, again, on behalf of another person. Jesus continues this intercessory prayer ministry to this very day. His life, a picture of intercession. And now it says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is, Romans 8, 27, because he, that is Jesus, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In Romans 8, 34, who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's still doing it. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. One mediator, one intercessor. This is Jesus who to this day stands in the gap for us who to this day prays on behalf and don't think for a moment that it doesn't hurt. That even now it's not painful for Jesus. You think that it's difficult for you when you're praying for a loved one who's rejected Jesus, a friend or a family member who, who, who's shunning this whole idea of following Jesus, of eternal life, eternal salvation, and it hurts and it saddens you. How do you think Jesus feels who is constantly interceding? Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is the great intercessor. Intercessory prayer produces love. And Jesus is that great intercessor. But if the Bible says there's only one mediator, then why do we have to do it? Let's just leave it to him, right? Let, let Jesus do the interceding. We'll pray for our stuff, but you know, let him be the one who stands in the gap. Why should I be involved in intercessory prayer? Because it is the most Christ-like praying. And if you wanna be Christ-like, 
then you're gonna pray like Jesus prayed. Intercessory prayer imitates, it associates, it aligns with Jesus. It's so valuable in the Christian walk because intercessory prayer develops the, the, the discipline of taking my eyes off of myself, which is a very typical place for my eyes to be. I don't know about you, maybe you all have this down, but I have such a tendency to be so self-aware and self-concerned and self-focused and selfish. Intercessory prayer causes me to look away from self to pray on behalf of others, to be concerned for brothers and sisters, to, to care about those who are lost, and to take it all before Jesus, who is the mediator of the better covenant, the mediator of the new way. Now, all that in mind, in our understanding, a, a definition, an understanding of intercessory prayer, what that really means, I wanna learn some more about it, looking now at Samuel. So in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Thinking about the story before us, we're at the beginning of this new form of government, right? At the outset, this, this new uh, monarchy under Saul as king, and at the very beginning of it in chapter 12, the whole chapter is Samuel interceding for the people. Samuel lifting up intercessory prayer for this people, Israel. His eye is to renewal. He wants to renew the people to the covenant, to bring them to the point of repentance. Let me stop and say this. Parents, when you have disciplined your children, have you realized that sometimes you gotta get them to the breaking point? And I'm not talking about abuse. But, but in raising my kids, and, and it was different with each one of them, I realized there had to come a point where they realized the wrong or they felt the wrong or they understood the wrong. Oftentimes that came with the spanking. Yes, I did. My dad did too, you know? Applying the board of education to the seat of knowledge kind of thing. <laughs> And you don't do that because you want to hurt a child. You do that because you get to a point where the child has got to break. The moment has to happen. And this is what is happening with Samuel in chapter 12 is he's, he, he's praying for the people. And they're like, oh, yes, oh, yes, 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 whatever. And he's like, no, you've got to get this, which is so much a part of intercessory prayer. I'm getting ahead of myself on this. But understand that as Samuel prays in 1 Samuel 12, he is desperate that his people Repent, come back to God. God is giving them a king like the nations. Okay, the Lord is acquiescing. He's gonna give you a king, but you've got to repent. We've had the grandkids uh, staying with us. Hannah and the grandkids are staying right now until she leaves because the Navy doesn't do things on our time schedule. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's a, couple, a couple weeks into June when they finally are gonna be able to move out and, and join Josiah in Florida. So Hannah and both of my grandsons are living with us right now. Silas and Ethan are there. Silas and Ethan, the last two nights, Hannah was out doing other things, so grandma and grandpa, granddad and Mimi were on task to take care of the kids, right? Which means Mimi takes care of the kids. Anyway, <laughs> so we put them to bed, right? We put them to bed, we set them down there, we tuck them in, and um, Ethan has this little stuffed animal called Raggle, or Raggles, Raggles, and uh, he's down there in bed, and we go upstairs, and five minutes later, here comes Silas and Ethan up the stairs. 
And we forgot raggles. Okay, get raggles, go back to bed. Well, you're gonna take us down, right? Of course, so we go back down the stairs and we get them all tucked into bed and we come back upstairs. Five minutes later, here they come again. Cheryl takes them back down, tucks them in and says, look, Ethan, Raggles said that he was gonna go to sleep. You need to help Raggles keep his promise, okay? This, this is how you talk when you're dealing with these kids. So help Raggles keep his promise. So we go back upstairs, we're sitting there. Five minutes go by, 10 minutes. Here comes Ethan. Stands at the top of the stairs. Ethan, what are you doing? Raggles broke his promise. <laughs> How these kids think. It's discipline. You need discipline. <laughs> Repentance. I'm like, Ethan, repent. <laughs> Even in this new national system that is now developed for Israel, Samuel is trying to get the people to look to the Lord, to see the centrality of God. And so in verse 14, just back it up a bit, he says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. This is a good thing. It's okay. All right, you have a monarchy now. But God is still central. And as we talked about midweek, the monarchy can work if God is central. The theocracy is what God wanted, but you've rejected that. Okay, the monarchy can work if God remains central. He says, verse 15, however, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. And by the way, nothing has changed. Between verses 14 and 15, between Israel then and humanity now, nothing has changed. This is the simple choice. If you will fear the Lord, if you will listen to the Lord, serve the Lord, don't rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then you're gonna follow him. But if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, his hand will be against you. And that's not changed. Same today. However our lives might be governed, and I'm not gonna get all into the politics of this, but I did say on Wednesday night, whatever system of government you dwell under, it's irrelevant, is God central? Is Jesus the focus? If he's not the focus, no system of government will save you. Is Jesus the focus? Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who is against us? But if we are against God, no national identity can save us. So Samuel knows this people. He knows that renewal by repentance is not easily received, so he's gonna do something here. He's gonna try to get their attention. He's gonna go beyond simply praying for them, simply preaching to them. He's gonna pray for rain, verse 16. Even now, take your stand. See this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. This is absolute confidence this is about to happen. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he will send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. And so Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent kolot, thunders, and rain 
that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Great, he's got their attention. As the, the thunder roars and the rain downpours in the wheat harvest. And that's significant, it's the wheat harvest. This is Israel's perennially dry season. Zero pre precipitation. You can count on it. It's not like, I, I mentioned, it's not like Washington State where we're gonna get a drizzle here and there all summer long. This is the dry season in Israel. Once May hits, forget it, pal. You're not gonna get rain until the fall. And it gets drier and drier and drier. Roni likes to say, these fields that are green right now and next week will be completely yellow. Because no rain's coming. Once May 1st hits on the Hebrew calendar, it's the month of Sivan. May, June is Sivan. Once Sivan hits, no rain. It's very interesting that this is the wheat harvest. What's partially interesting, I'll just throw this out to you, but there is a psalm that is always prayed on Shavuot, which celebrates the wheat harvest. And that psalm is Psalm 29, the psalm of the seven thunders as though the people are recognizing what brings their fruit. So it's, it's the wheat harvest and downpours in Israel, thunder in Israel this time of year, extremely rare. But what's the purpose? Why, why the rain? Why, why is that what Samuel calls for? Well, you just told us, Rick, it's because it's extremely rare. Think further beyond that. Why? Intercession for inundation, we could call this. During the wheat harvest, is it just because it was a rare occurrence and he's trying to get their attention? Hold that thought. It's important, we're gonna come back and answer it in just a minute. Back to intercessory prayer, what does it look like? Watch how it plays out before us here with Samuel. Verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. There's a problem right there. They're asking him to pray to his God, not theirs. They don't say pray to the Lord our God. Pray to the Lord your God. That disconnect, man, we have got to break the disconnect of pastors and people or, or, or priests and congregants, or prophets, and, and parishioners. That is so ridiculous. There is nothing to that. That whole idea, well, pray for us. Oh, I gotta get a pastor to pray for me. No, you need to pray. Grab a brother or a sister. Pray together, take it to the Lord. The prayer of a righteous person is effective. Doesn't say the prayer of a pastor. Now, hopefully the pastor's gonna be righteous, but if he's not, you know, that's a different thing. But this is an issue. These people say, you pray for us to the Lord your God. I hate when I hear people say, boy, I really like coming to your church. It's not my church. It's your church. Amen. In fact, we are the church, right? It's not some distant organization, something over here. It's us. It's two of us meeting for, when, when Jim and I meet for coffee, guess what? Church happens. That's church. And we're gonna meet for coffee, right? Okay. That's church. And so when they say, pray for your service to the Lord, your God, they are completely disconnecting from what's taking place. He is the Lord, their God. 
They say, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. So they're recognizing it. They're getting it. The rain is having some effect. There, there was an old group back in the 90s, Christian group called uh, Pray for Rain. Actually, they changed their name to PFR because there was already apparently a group called Pray for Rain. So PFR. And PFR wrote, wrote this great song. I, I, can, I can sing it through in my head. I heard it so much back then called Pray for Rain. And in the course of the song, they sang, I pray for rain to come and wash away what's made me numb. I pray for a raging storm to drown the sin in me. That's Samuel's intention. That in part is why Samuel is praying for this deluge, this downpour, that it would wash out the sin and that it would bring them to the point of renewal with the Lord. Thunder and rain, and it, it does freak them out, so it's starting to have some impact. But I believe more than we might realize. Look at verse 20. So Samuel said to the people, do not fear, you have committed all this evil. Yes, yes, this is wrong. Yes, this is wicked. Yes, you have done wrong. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Wow, Wow, that's amazing. You've committed all this evil yet. That is not how we think. We think you've done these bad things, period. The Bible says you've done evil yet. Yet, it's the word of grace. Even though in spite of, or even in light of our sin, yet, he says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Note this, four things about intercessory prayer. Number one, it takes heart. It takes heart. This is Samuel who is praying from the heart for this people, and he is calling them to the heart. Serve the Lord with all your heart, with everything that you are. We sang this morning, there was the line in the song, Andy asked me about it, that uh, he's in our veins, he's in our veins, which is a songwriter's way of saying with all my heart, that he's, he's completely within me, he has overtaken me. And intercessory prayer takes heart. Listen, it's not just praying for marriages to be saved. It's not just praying for morality to be restored or even for illnesses to be healed. I was gonna talk about this and I actually pulled it out of my notes because it was just too discouraging. But I read yet another article earlier this week, an article about how marriages are failing, how pornography is on the rise in the church and so Christianity is collapsing in America. You know what, I've read articles like that for 20 years. Not to say that the church is in great power and strength in our country, but don't worry, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, or the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Church is not gonna fall. It, it, it may be sidelined, it may not be as central in our country as it once was, but the church will continue to stand and yet, and yet it is true. We see so many marriages in trouble. Maybe, maybe it's yours. We so many, see so many lives in disrepair. We see immorality among men and women in the church. This whole pornography issue has not gone away. And we see this desire that we can make a change. So intercessory groups get together and they begin to pray. 
And they intercede for marriages and they intercede for morality and they intercede even, even that illnesses be healed. Listen, intercessory prayer takes heart. It is fervent prayer that a heart would be convicted. Now, I wanna go even beyond praying for marriages, praying for morality, praying for healing. That true intercessory prayer is looking to convict a heart. How often do you pray this? Let's say you have a brother who's not a believer. I'm just gonna use a, a generic example. My brother is a believer, but let's say he wasn't. And I begin to pray for my brother Intercessory prayer that takes heart, that is, that, is, that is passionate, doesn't just say, oh Lord, save Ron. No, intercessory prayer with heart says, oh Lord, bring Ron to the end of himself. Oh Lord, do whatever it takes to save him. Oh Lord, devastate him. Oh Lord, make the way of the transgressor hard. Oh, Lord, make life difficult for him until he finds you. See, now, who prays like that? Well, I can't do that. Why? See, the prayer of the intercessor sees salvation as so vitally important that no matter what it takes in this life, bring it. If that will save the person, bring it. Intercessory prayer with, with heart, praying for conviction, I'm not just talking about conviction on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about someone who realizes that they can go no further, that they're at the bottom of the barrel, that they are at the end of themselves, and that there is nowhere to turn, perhaps, but to him. It's a prayer of conviction. It's a prayer that a person recognizes their desperate need to repent and to renew then a right relationship with God. And the reason I'm harping on this is no marriage is set right without repentance. No morality in this country or any other will be restored without conviction of sin. No illness is worth healing without salvation. Samuel says, Serve the Lord your God with all your heart. You know that's right out of the Shema? Straight out of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. So intercessory prayer is never impersonal. I said earlier that intercessory prayer actually hurts should be painful for the intercessor? It should. Do you ache over the person who is living in rebellion to God? Does it, does it bring a weight of sorrow to your heart? Then you are praying as an intercessor. Why would I want to do that? Because prayer produces love. It really does. Husbands, if you're sick of your wife and you're having marital problems and you're done with her and you just don't wanna have anything to do with her again, try this, try praying for her and see what it does to your heart. Wives, you're done with your husband, start praying. Well, I don't wanna pray for him. I didn't say you wanted to. Start doing it. You start going before the Lord every morning on behalf of your spouse See what that does to your marriage. That's intercession. Not just the bland, oh, Lord, save my marriage. No, 
Lord, convict me of my sin before my spouse. Lord Jesus, love her, save her, forgive her, be with her, and the more you pray for her, guys, the more you're gonna love her. You're just gonna find yourself realizing how vital she is to you. And ladies, the same thing. That's intercessory prayer. It takes heart. Paul got this. The apostle Paul, as he made his way around Asia on his missionary journeys, he understood this. He wrote in Galatians 4.19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. None of us guys understand labor pains like you ladies do. <laughs> and it is absolutely true, but I can imagine. I've had some tummy aches. Can you imagine? This is the idea. Paul says, I labored like a woman giving birth for you. And he goes further, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. This is the apostle Paul. Don't think of this hard, cold-hearted theologian sitting back writing off letters that would be in the New Testament someday. You think of a man who is writing to Corinth, that messed up, sinful church, and he is weeping as he writes. That's intercession. Intercessory prayer takes heart. Warning, it is not for the faint of heart. Because intercessory prayer will impact the intercessor spiritually and emotionally. It'll wear you out. Why? Because intercession affects the Lord. If anybody has ever been affected by interceding for humanity, it's Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse three, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why? Us. He ached and continues to ache for us. 1 Timothy 2, 5 again says, there's one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ, Jesus. John eleven thirty five 35 tells us Jesus wept. Why do you weep? Well, Lazarus was dead. Yeah, yeah, four days ago. Jesus could have gone and stopped it, could have gone and healed him. Jesus knew this. In fact, Jesus even said, it's gonna bring glory to God, so we're gonna wait. And he shows up, and of course, whoa, lo and behold, Lazarus is dead. What does Jesus do? He weeps. And I think there's so much there. I think he's weeping because he sees the pain of Mary and Martha. I think he's weeping because he loves Lazarus. I think he's weeping because he's gonna bring Lazarus back from the dead, back into this life. Man, that'll make you weep. <laughs> Bottom line, Jesus wept because Jesus felt for Lazarus and for Mary and for Martha and even in himself, he wept. When he approached Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41, Jesus saw the city and the Bible says he wept over it. As he came down the Mount of Olives, before mounting the donkey and before all the hallelujahs and glory to God and, and hosannas, Jesus was in tears for the city he knew was about to go down. Intercessory prayer is painful because it takes heart. We see Samuel praying for this people and calling this people back to serve God with all their hearts. Listen, God's the one who gave us passion. 
If you're able to be passionate about anything, guess why? Because you were created in his image. He's not sitting up there cold and aloof. He is feeling what's going on in your life, in my life, in our marriages, in the immorality of this country, in the sicknesses that people deal with. He feels these things. He knows these things. And God responds to passion with passion. So the intercessor whose heart is broken, who is weeping over a situation, a brother or a sister, God hears the passionate heart. Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, speaking of Jesus says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. By the way, that's not just talking about Gethsemane. What do you think Jesus was doing when he snuck off early in the morning or stayed up all night long praying? Much crying and weeping over this lost world, over his people. God responds to passion with passion, which is why I say intercessory prayer produces love. See, when we pray like Jesus, the love of Christ controls us 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Look at verse 21. So intercessory prayer, it, it, it takes heart. And then verse 21, you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. Futile means formless, it means vain, it means empty. Futile is the word tohu, tohu. In Genesis chapter one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. That is, it was tohu and bohu. Tohu va bohu, formless and void. Tohu, formless, empty, nothing to it. And he says, don't go after empty things. As a, as a question of conviction, and I ask this of myself, but, but let's ask this together as a church, how many of our prayers are futile? How many of our prayers are just kind of empty things? You know, the, the dinnertime prayer. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray before a meal or, or the prayer that we just kind of cast up and we're not really thinking and, it, and it's really kind of a, 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 an empty thing. Have you ever felt like your prayers were exercises in futility? Like, why even do it? The futility is in our thinking. The futility is that we think we can fix or respond the issues and problems of our lives with human wisdom. We'll pray about it when we get to that, but we got stuff we have to do first. You know, we just need to get the right team on this or the best programs running in our church. We need to brainstorm some good ideas to make ministry happen. How about we pray if we spent a fraction of the time in intercessory prayer that we spend on trying to figure out how to take care of our lives, how much weight would be added to the truth of our lives? Number two, intercessory prayer is heavy. It takes heart, it is heavy. And that is to say it's heavy like the glory of God. It's weighty, it's substantive. There's nothing flimsy or useless about taking the time to pray on behalf, to intercede for another. There's nothing lightweight or ineffective about this kind of praying. It's the greatest access to substantive power that we have. 
greater than anything else. Remember, the Bible says, Colossians 2.17, the substance belongs to Christ. You want substance? You want something of, of tangible value? Pray. Intercessory prayer is tangible value. It's, it's spiritual force multiplication. I'm gonna thank my buddy Jim for this. We were talking at our shepherds meeting on Thursday night. Every now and then, Jim throws out these Navy terms. I love it because I keep learning. He goes, you know, that's, that's like force multiplication. I'm like, that's like what? First of all, he used a math term, so you lost me. Force multiplication, this is what it means. Quote, in military science, force multiplication or a force multiplier is a factor or combination of factors that gives personnel or weapons the ability to accomplish greater feats than without it. Force multiplication, something that multiplies the power. I'm like, that's a definition of intercessory prayer. That's exactly what it is. It's force multiplication. See, I have this flimsy little force, this little body God's given me, and this mind, and this spirit, and I'm moving about this world, and, and I, I'm weak. I, there's not a whole lot of change that I can affect here. But then I start to pray. I start to intercede on behalf of the saints. I start to pray in the will of the Father. I start to allow my heart to actually be broken on behalf of the lost, on behalf of broken marriages, on behalf of all the issues that are plaguing us, the issues that would otherwise be overwhelming. I start lifting that up to the Father, force multiplication. This flimsy little power that is Pastor Rick suddenly is force multiplied. That's intercessory prayer. It's heavy. There's substance to it. Do we believe that? Our flimsy little words, our tiny little mustard seed of faith is force multiplied by God's inundating power. If you look at chapter 12, again, what just happened? Samuel said, stand up, check it out. I'm gonna pray for rain. And if it rains, you're gonna know God is in this. And he prayed for rain and down came the thunder. Down came the torrential waters. What, what did Samuel do? He prayed. He spoke a sentence, his little words, God's great power. That's intercessory prayer. It's, it's heavy, it's weighty. Consider this verse again. We read it on Wednesday night, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse three, which says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are so in our flesh that we actually think the substance is our flesh? Come on. No, we have, this, we have these weapons that are powerful, divinely powerful, that can destroy fortresses called the weapons of our warfare. What are they? It's simple prayer and the ministry of the word. We don't have anything else, by the way. Which is why now, 20 years into the Bridge Christian Fellowship, you know what we do on Sundays? Same thing we were doing 20 years ago. It hadn't changed. Sounds like you're in a rut, Pastor. No. No, we recognize the weapons of our warfare, which are the ministry of the word and prayer. But by the way, that's Acts chapter six, verse four, the ministry of the word and, and prayer. But actually, it's the other way around. Peter says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word, the sword of God, prayer, the force multiplier. 
These are our weapons. It's, it's all we've got to fight with. It's what we have to fight with. Speaking of us being around here 20 years ago, I shared something I, I've never told anybody, but I shared it with the shepherds uh, Thursday, so I figured I'd better share it with you because one of them might, and then you'll know. <laughs> when we started the bridge, we were 20 people in a living room. We, after three months, moved into Rod and Barb's barn where we stayed for 11 years. Not straight through, I mean, we all went home. <laughs> but as a, as a pastor of this church, so I had been raised on the Southern California mega church mentality. I had served at large churches. I'm like, this is, this is how you have success, and this is, this is what I, I had believed before, but God brought me to a living room with 20 people and said, here you go. <laughs> and there was a whispering of the enemy, and I heard it a lot, early on especially. The whispering of the enemy was, you're just playing church. There's nothing real here. You're, you're just, you know, you meet with your elders. Come on, there's five guys sitting here talking about, oh, you're so important. This is, this is what I heard coming from the enemy to undermine. And I, I kept, I remember in those days just going, God, give me confidence in you because, I mean, we're a, we're a podunk little group of people. No offense to my brothers and sisters who started with You're not podunk, but there's just 20 of us, you know? Really? Come on. On North Whidbey Island. So not only were we small at the start, but we were in a place where what, what impact can we make at all? It's not like we're downtown Seattle or in LA where we can really get people and have, you know, a big radio and TV ministry. We're on Whidbey Island. You're playing church. I heard it over and over, and I heard the Lord just keep saying, you know what? Trust me. You just trust me. You just trust me. What the enemy never understands is the weight and power of the weapons of our warfare. What the word of God simply shared, simply spoken, simply passed around from person to person actually does is awesome. It is a two-edged sword. What prayer does, if we would believe it and have faith for it, if we would intercede for each other with, with heart, that it is heavy, intercessory prayer is heavy. And Jesus, his MO is pray, share my word, and just go one person at a time. Satan doesn't get this. Doesn't make any sense to him, which is why prayer and the ministry of the word continues to defeat him because he just doesn't understand. Number three, number three, intercessory prayer hinges on hope. It takes heart, it's heavy, it hinges on hope. Verse 22, for the Lord will not abandon his people. He should, he should. We're 400 years worth of judges and it's been a train wreck so far, but the Lord will not abandon his people. Samuel says, why? On account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Intercessory prayer hinges on that hope. <laughs> this is not conditional. This is not if we can pull it off. And by the way, it's not any of our names that are on the line here. It's his. What God is doing in this world, in Israel and in the church, in this world and throughout history, what he is doing, he is doing for his name's sake, not yours, not mine. 
You know what that means? I don't have to worry about failure because it's not mine to lose. The kingdom is not mine to lose. It's his kingdom. It's his work. It's his, but it's not my plan. I'm involved. I've been invited, but it's, it's his. If you think praying is futile, you're forgetting one crucial thing. God does not, God will not abandon his people. And so the prayer that is offered up to the Lord is offered up to the one who has his eyes on you before you even start to pray. Psalm 106, verse seven, speaking of Israel, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name. This is always the point. It's for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. How, how many times do we have to read about, hear, or experience the faithfulness of the Lord before we understand he does not abandon his people? He does not give up on them. Why? Because that's who he is. And so intercessory prayer hinges on that hope, hope in the one to whom we pray. It's not hope that somehow magically we're gonna be able to call down thunder. It's that we're praying to the one who brings the thunder. And we're praying to the one whose voice is thunder. And the faithful tenacity of the heart of God, that's Samuel's confidence as he continues to pray and intercede. Read on, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Okay, stop right there. Do you see how serious this is? Samuel says, if I stop praying for you, it's sin. Is it? Is it sin to stop praying for someone? Let me tell you, unless the Lord tells you to stop praying for someone, unless the Lord says cease praying, and by the way, that's incredibly rare. There's only one instance in all of scripture where God tells someone not to pray. He tells Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 7, 16, 11, 14, and 14, 11, he says, don't pray for this people. Because at this point, what the people needed was judgment. And he didn't want Jeremiah's prayers getting in the way of that. But let me ask you, I mean, really, is it sin to stop praying? And I suggest to you, in fact, yes, it is that when we stop praying for another, we're actually sinning. What do you mean, Rick? Sin in Hebrew, the word is hata. Hata, it means to wrong, to offend, or to miss. It has a parallel word in the Greek. In fact, it's really interesting. This is one of those times where the Hebrew word and the Greek word, two different words, but they mean the exact same thing, even synonymously. The synonym is that it means to wrong or to offend, hata. In the Greek, it's hamartano, and it means to wrong or to offend, but it also means to miss. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, it is an archery term, that if you fire an arrow and miss, even by a fraction of an inch, it's hata. It's hamartano. Anything other than a perfect bullseye, straight up the middle, flawlessly, Anything else is hata. 
Anything else is hamartano. Anything else is sin. Anything other than a perfect shot. So what are you saying, Rick? Samuel says, if I stop praying for you, I will miss God's target. I'll sin. I'll miss God's mark. I will offend his will if I cease to pray for you. Let me ask you today, what is God's targeted will? What is his most singular desire for this world? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And amazing though it may seem, Jesus has invited us into this intercessory ministry, has invited us to pray in such a way, and if we stop praying, we will miss the mark. So yeah, to cease praying when the Lord has called you to pray is to sin. But we have been called to inundate the world with the message of salvation, with the gospel. Now with that kind of thinking, we should all be intercessors, right? If we call for a Tuesday night meeting of intercessory prayer, the whole church ought to show up because we have all been invited to intercede in the name of Jesus. If I stop praying for you, it would be sin. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Verse 23 is interesting because we see two aspects of the man Samuel. We see him in priestly intercession and we see him in prophetic instruction. Samuel says, I'm gonna keep praying for you. He's old and gray here. I'm gonna keep praying for you and I'm gonna keep instructing you. Priestly intercession, prophetic instruction. And the whole point for Samuel is I'm gonna keep doing this to my dying breath that you heed the holiness of God. Psalm 16, 25 tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Number four in your notes is the last one. So intercessory prayer takes heart. It is heavy. It hinges on hope. Number four, intercessory prayer heeds holiness. This is really the basis of intercessory prayer. It is heeding the holiness of God. Again, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Listen to me here. This world is a mess, no question. This country, our communities, our families, even our churches, and when I stop and I read articles like I did last week or I start to really ponder these things, I, I, I can, it can seem absolutely insurmountable. How in the world can we make a difference? How can we change the direction that this country's headed or what's going on in our communities? How can we really make any kind of difference at all? This is way beyond my ability to do anything that's gonna help overcome or fix or heal or solve. Intercessory prayer heeds the holiness of God. Now watch this. Samuel knew that a king like the nations was not Israel's answer to peace. This was not gonna solve their problems. This was not going to save them from their enemies. 
In the same way, brothers and sisters, and I've said this before, I will keep saying this, if we attempt to organize or activate ourselves in hopes of redirecting or recovering our society and do not enter into intercessory prayer, we will fail. There are a lot of great programs out there right now, a lot of great organizations trying to call for, for a more a morally conservative return to the Constitution and to godliness in America. And we can dive in and involve ourselves in those things, but if we don't engage in intercessory prayer, none of it's gonna work. Doesn't matter how slick the flyers look. Doesn't matter how many organizational meetings we have. If we are not praying, we will fail. Intercessory prayer heeds the holiness of God. What this country needs, what this world needs is holiness, righteousness. So go back to this question. Why does this happen at the wheat harvest? Why does Samuel intercede for inundation at the time of the wheat harvest? And my brother Jim helped me with this this week. You gotta farm wheat to understand this. I'm not a wheat farmer. I don't, it's the wheat harvest. What's the big deal? Wheat farmers are no fans of summer rain. You come up, you have a, a heavy rain at the time of the wheat harvest, and it ruins the wheat. Rain, it, it soaks the grain, it bends the stalk. If it's heavy enough, it'll destroy the harvest. What is going on when Samuel says, I'm gonna pray for rain and thunder, and you will see at the time of the wheat harvest, as he points out, and suddenly deluge. What happens to this agrarian society? These are all farmers, the Israelites, watching their crops be devastated. Now, I thought about that. Why would he do such a thing? You say he loves the people, but he prays that their crops are destroyed, and you can see the people going, whoa, 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 wait, wait, make it stop. We get it, we understand, we've sinned. Why would you pray for rain to ruin a people's harvest? Davis says, this showed what agencies of destruction God held in his hand and how easily he could bring these to bear on them and on their property, and it directly displayed Yahweh's estimate of their passion for a king. A harvest of righteousness depends on a person's repentance. And if Samuel couldn't get this people to come to the point of repentance, this was of no use. And the only way to get them to come to that point of repentance was a punishing discipline. This had to hurt. This had to be felt. I'm putting it to you this way. Only when people see their sin from a holy perspective is there any hope that they will turn away from it. It's only when we recognize the distance between God's righteousness and our sinfulness and repent of that. Because again, the harvest of righteousness, it depends on repentance. Repentance. David says, if God grants us sight of our own sin and of his displeasure, we can be sure he does not do so to see us tremble. He does so to see us tremble and restored. 
Samuel prays up a little destruction for their crops. Why? That their hearts would return to God. That's the intercessor. That's intercessory prayer that heeds holiness. Romans eleven twenty two says, behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Let's stand up together. One final thing to say to you. Intercessory prayer is serious business. This is not church games. It is not playing church like the devil would have some believe. I ask you this question. Is there any value in life from wheat to wealth to whatever? Is there any value in life that compares to eternal salvation? Let that direct your prayers for the lost. Let that direct your prayers for people who are hurting and broken and confused and standing opposed to the Lord in any way in their lives. Nothing in this life compares to the salvation that God has offered us through Jesus Christ. And so as flash flood torrents begin spreading over Israel, the rain sweeping through the dry wadis that by that time would have been completely dried out, the, the land covered in that yellow grass. As all this torrent is sweeping through, Samuel, he finishes by saying in verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you, but if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. I mean, the language is, is recognizing exactly what the waters of this torrent are doing, sweeping away crops, sweeping through the dry wadis. You're gonna be swept away if you don't pursue God with all your heart. So here's my final word for you. We can be caught up or we can be swept away. And Jesus says it very clearly in Matthew 24. He says, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the day's of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the ark, until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And Jesus is talking about the sweeping away of judgment. That word took away. We've talked about the word. I won't give you the Greek word right now, but we've talked about how that is a picture of being taken to judgment, of being taken out, of being swept away and destroyed. And Jesus says there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. But then when he says taken, he's not talking about being swept away. He uses that word paralambano, one will be received unto. So we will either be caught up or swept away. Fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart. Intercede for the saints according to the will of God. Pray for the lost that they would repent whatever it takes and not be swept away. And pray finally that we would be caught up to Jesus.
Let's pray.